0: My name is Dr. Rebecca McKendry. I began working at Fangoria as an intern over 15 years ago, and I spent most of my time with the company working as the director of marketing. When Fangoria shuttered its doors in 2016, I was devastated. And over the next few years, I went on to get a PhD entirely focused in horror and cult media and began working as a professor focusing in horror and film, as well as a co-host of Blumhouse's Shockwaves podcast. In 2008 when fangoria was resurrected with a new staff and a new fervor i was once again asked to join the fangoria family this time as a podcast host and it is my great pleasure to welcome you all to nightmare university this episode is brought to you by fangoria magazine fangoria magazine is back in a deluxe 100 page quarterly edition Each issue includes set visits, deep dives, new discovery, and minimal ads, all printed on collectible grade paper stock that reimagines the classic magazine for a 2019 audience. You'll see familiar names like Mike Gingold and Tony Timpone, and you'll see bylines that will make your eyeballs pop out of your head, like Barbara Crampton and S. Craig Zoller. And the best part, it's in print only. Go to Fangoria.com to subscribe today. That's Fangoria.com. This episode of Nightmare University is also brought to you by Diabolic DVD. For over 15 years, Diabolic DVD has been the source for cult, horror, and weird cinema to customers all around the world. Diabolic offers a one-stop shopping experience for all your favorite labels, including Arrow, Synapse, Vinegar Syndrome, Severin, Mondo Macabro, Blue Underground, 88, and many more from all corners of the globe. Whether you're looking for the definitive version of Suspiria or trying to upgrade your crusty old DVD of Cannibal Holocaust, Diabolic DVD is the owner operated small business choice for all of the demented discs you have been craving. Visit them online at DiabolicDVD.com. Welcome to today's episode of Nightmare University. Today, we are going to be digging into torture films. So I am titling this episode, Disemboweling America, the history and meaning of American torture films and national trauma. And I link the two together. Well, one, I'm not the first to do it. This has been done by film theorists for decades, linking trauma and violence um, in the real world to an increase in violence in horror films. And so what we're specifically gonna be looking at today is too very distinctive and very individualized cycles of torture films that we saw in the United States. We're first going to look at the 1970s and then we're going to look at the 2000s, what are dubbed the post 9-11 torture films or they're also called torture porn a lot of the times. So we're going to look at the two of them, how they're kind of stylistically different and then how they were both a response to things that were going on in the media and in the world at the time and how they are both theorized to be responses to things that were going on in the world at the time, to violent things that were happening Um, and I'm gonna start by saying I don't particularly like torture films which is a weird thing because I'm fascinated by them Um, I ended up spending a lot of my academic um, research focusing on torture films and I have to say from the start that I get the fact that a lot of people don't like torture films the torture porn um, cycle was incredibly bifurcating where some people absolutely loved it and some people absolutely hated it and this knee-jerk love-hate reaction is natural I completely it it and i feel it myself there are some torture films that i'm fascinated by and then there are other ones that i find to be completely abhorrent that i personally have trouble getting through And I think that that is the reaction that we are supposed to have to these films. They are extreme. They are violent. They are really trying to push our buttons across the board. And so I want to say that just because you as a viewer may find torture films to be a little distasteful or you may not be a huge fan of them does not mean that you should not continue listening to this episode. Because I think that that is kind of the point going into this, that these films really do kind of push buttons. They really do great some people. And what can come of that and what that says about a particular um, historical period of films when that becomes what is popular. And I also want to say going in that even though that I'm going to be talking about the Vietnam War and 9-11 and um, Guantanamo Bay and things like that, this is in no way political. What I'm specifically looking at is historical events and then the films that came afterwards. So this is not a political statement in any way, more of a statement on films response to things that are happening in the world, and specifically audiences' responses to things that are happening in the world. So what we're going to do is we're going to start by defining torture films, and then we're going to look at the origins um, and specifically take that through the 1970s torture cycle post-Vietnam. And then we're going to take a look at the 2000s and the idea of it being post-9-11 and what that even means. And then what I specifically really wanted to, to dig into is the fact that these films have been called... response to national trauma. It's been stated before that these films were increasingly violent because of everything that we were seeing in the news and hearing about happening overseas. And I really want to explore the idea of can these films be cathartic? Can they be used for healing? Were they used for healing? Was there a connection between how violent the world was increasingly becoming and the fact that our cinema was kind of um, moving parallel to that? And so... I'm going to start with a story about kind of when I first became fascinated with torture films straight out of my master's program, which was focused in film and theater education. I was teaching at a high school outside of Washington, Washington, DC, and I was doing just that. I was teaching film and theater at a high school. And my film students, even though it was a high school and I had to censor a lot of what I showed there, all of my high school students knew that I was just completely obsessed with horror and that that was definitely my wheelhouse. And so anytime they heard about horror films or saw something new, they came in and they were always super excited to discuss it with me. And I have... Very vivid memories of one of my students coming in one day, so excited because this new extreme teaser had been released or leaked or whatever it was. It had made it online and it was showing a girl's eyeball hanging out and some guy was cutting it and it was insanity and oh my God, how did this film ever get made and how was it going to be shown at a multiplex near you? And this was the craziest thing that had ever been made. And I remember watching it. And this was the teaser for Hostel that my students were showing me. And I remember watching it and thinking, whoa, yeah, that's pretty extreme. Haven't seen anything like that before. And then it took me a couple of minutes to go, oh, wait, yeah, I have. I've seen plenty of stuff like that. I mean, Last House on the Left from the 70s. I'd seen the entire Guinea Pig series from the 1980s. Um, Audition had just kind of reached the States by this time. Ichi the Killer. And, of course, all of Herschel Gordon-Lewis. And then there's all of the... Italian cannibal movies so yeah we had seen this type of violence before but a bigger question is and what I found most shocking kind of like what struck me when I was first seeing that clip was why were we seeing it there and how was it showing on a multiplex like this was getting ready to open nationwide and if we look back at all the other films that I'm talking about guinea pig Out of Japan, that was definitely a series. It was underground in Japan. It kind of, you know, made its way over here in bootleg form, but it was still very much underground. Even Audition and Ichi the Killer and some of the other extreme Asian horrors that we were seeing around the time period, still looking at overseas. Horschel Gordon-Lewis, was awesome and we're going to talk a lot about him on this episode but again these were kind of drive-in fare they were nothing that would play at a multiplex near you and be a giant multi-million dollar project and then the same goes for the cannibal holocaust and cannibal ferox and these other extreme italian cannibal movies so what made this teaser so different and what made Hostile so different was it was the same extreme level of violence that we had seen in prior decades and prior torture films. But it was everywhere, and it was opening in malls across America, and that I had not seen before. And that's when I suddenly got interested in what was going on and really became fascinated with these films. And Hostel was not a film that I watched and enjoyed. It was not something that I spent the whole time smiling and excited and couldn't wait to see what came on next, and it was a thrill a minute for me. It was grueling. I remember seeing it in the theater and just squirming in my seat and having to look away and, and watching someone vomit is never fun for me in any capacity. But at the end of it, it was weird where I was kind of like, you know what? I, I kind of enjoyed it. Like it was, it was a weird parable that was going on. And I do have to say, I, I definitely enjoyed Hostel 2 a lot more. And I don't know if that's because I knew at that point what I was going into or because Hostel 2 had a different dynamic. Where we were exploring much more about the minds of the killers and the inner working of this little um, society slash business. Um, and so, but it was interesting because suddenly these torture films, which we had seen in smaller markets and on the drive in circuits and in kind of grindhouse settings before, were now in malls and multiplexes across America. And so I really became interested in them. And a lot of these films that came out in the 2000s immediately got labeled torture porn. And this is what we're still calling them to this day. This title, Torture Porn, was coined by critic David Edelson. And this specifically was supposed to represent this grouping of films, including The Saws. I won't include the first Saw. I'll explain why in a sec. But the, the Saw franchise from Saw 2 on um, included The Hills Have Eyes, The Hostile Film, Captivity. Um, and these were all kind of marked by violence torture, and sexual content, including nudity, and then also depravity. And they were all shockingly intense. These weren't just splatter films. It wasn't just about the gore. These were all very serious and almost felt cruel. And it wasn't even just that it was torture. We could look at a film like Funny Games that was released internationally around the same time, and I would not classify Funny Games as torture porn. Even though it's a torture film, it's missing that visceral, gory, just gut element that really I think classified torture porn. But the biggest thing that I saw amongst all these films is that they were all structured around the act of seeing torture. And within that the torture became little set pieces it was, if we look at the hostile films or even the Saw films, it's very much broken down by characters and each character being tortured individually. We're going to torture Mary and now we're going to look at Biff tied to a chair. I don't know why his name's Biff. We're going to look at Biff tied to a chair for a half an hour and all the stuff that's being done with him. And now we're going to go to Joe who's in this crazy contraption and see if he can get out before we move on to Dave and so the movies themselves were very much built in this kind of segmented character based moments that were ultimately just leading up to the torture and the torture really did become the focus of these movies character was somewhat there I would say a little bit in saw but and maybe a little bit as we get into Hostel 2. but for the most part the focus of these movies was not character driven we were not cheering for a particular hero or anything like that we were in it to see the torture and they knew that the filmmakers and the marketing people knew that and I'm gonna talk in a little bit about how these films were marketed to show the torture that that is what you were being presented and that's what the attraction was So the specific movies that I would include in torture porn saw is classified as the one that kicked it off, which I will say is a little bit questionable because for me, the first saw feels very stylistically different from some of the saws that come later. Um, We still get the idea of, you know, the two guys in the room, but it feels much smaller, much more contained than what would come later. And it feels much less focused on, you know, having somebody dig through a pit of dirty syringes to try to find a key is kind of where we went. And the first one, though, it did have a small amount of the traps that wasn't the focused as much as just daring somebody to cut their own foot off. Like, it did not seem as elaborate. Um, and so we'll talk a little bit about that as we go. Also, 2003's House of a Thousand Corpses this one does not get classified into the torture porn realm just because it does not feel quite like the others but i definitely think that this was a catalyst um i think that we saw saw in 2002 house of a thousand corpses in 2003 and then i would also put the texas chainsaw massacre remake into there so right there we have three films that are really kind of upping the ante with the gore and the violence and the cruelty But the one that I point to as, okay, now this is the start of the cycle would be Hostile in 2005. And even looking at just 2005 in general, we have Devil's Rejects come out that same year and Wolf Creek. Very shortly after, we have Teristas, we have Captivity, we have Hostile 2. And then this also leads to a chain of hyper-gory remakes. House of Wax, My Bloody Valentine, The Hills Have Eyes 1 and 2, Last House on the Left gets a remake, I Spit on Your Grave gets a remake. And every single one of these involves an element of torture and is still that very character-based feel where we're moving from one character to another. And even though that House of Wax feels like a slasher film because it is a killer who's kind of picking off these people one at a time... It still has this torture pornish feel to it where it is very torturing, where they're not just being outright taken out like you would see in slasher films in the 1980s. It's not just about killing this person as quickly as possible with a machete and instead becomes covering them in wax while they're still alive and setting them upright at a piano. So there's a lot more kind of torture elements that go into it. The the torture porn subgenre for me stopped around the end of the decade. We saw a Human Centipede in 2000. 2009 we saw bunny game and we saw the end of the Saw sequels the the first round of Saw sequels and so that for me kind of center um represented the end of this particular cycle and of course we've still had torture films since then and we're always going to have little kind of you know one-offs and send outs and things like that but the the grouping together these films being kind of the popular trend that we're seeing at theaters i i would say ended at the uh, around 2009 so usually i I look at Texas Chainsaw Massacre as kind of um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Saw, and House of a Thousand Corpses as our catalysts. I don't necessarily put them into the torture porn subgenre completely. I will say that these are our catalysts because it's never easy to try to determine exactly when a film trend starts and stops. Um, Sometimes you can do it. You can point to Jaws and go like, hey, that one made a ton of money and then everybody made a whole bunch of shark ripoffs. But with this one, it's not as easy. Uh, So you kind of see these like little inklings of violent films coming out. And then we see the floodgates open and the floodgates open for me with Hostel. And this one made total sense. Eli Roth is super influenced by grindhouse films of the 1970s. Um, We were also seeing this huge success of Japanese torture films like Audition and HDE, which of course he was influenced by. And so Hostel just felt right for him. The question more for me becomes why did Hostel hit so well with audiences what was it about this movie at this particular time that made audiences go yes people tied to chairs having their eyeballs gouged out we want more of this give us 10 more years what was it about this movie at this particular moment that really struck that people said this is what i need right now and that's where my interest really comes in so, traditionally, this is not anything new, the idea of violence in real life begetting violence cinema. And so, we see this post Vietnam, and we're going to dive into the 70s in just a second. And here we're seeing it post 9 11 and post Guantanamo Bay. And this goes all the way back to post World War II. Theorist Gillies Deleuze divided cinema in general, up into two sections. He said that we've got the movement images and we've got the time images. And he felt that before World War II, we had movement images. We were capturing movement. We were capturing people, moving around screen, doing things. It was all action-based. And then after World War II, Cinema completely shifted and everything began to feel like a dream and it began to feel very disjointed. And it was much more about capturing the passage of time or the lack of a passage of time more so than it was capturing people doing stuff. And I point to this as like a film like The Bicycle Thief, where it's all about kind of you know the characters are doing stuff but it's much more about the emotion that's going on and about how this struggle and so even though that we see characters doing one thing the movie is much more about something else it's psychological versus ideological so even going all the way back to world war ii film theorists and critics were able to point and go hey there's been a really stark change in the cinema that we are seeing And so, of course, we're going to see this happen in horror as well. So that in mind, when did we get our first torture films? Well, that kind of depends on your definition of what is a torture film. Um, The one that I point to and kind of go, hey, that's the first time I kind of remember seeing what I would consider kind of the, the framework of what would become our torture film is The Sadist in 1963, directed by James Landis. This film is absolutely phenomenal. Um, huge influence on a lot of future filmmakers. I would definitely say Rob Zombie is a fan of this one. And um, I would highly recommend checking it out. It is about a group of teachers who are on their way to a baseball game and on the way they stop at what they realize is an abandoned gas station that has been taken over by a psychopath and his girlfriend friend who hold them hostage um, for the next couple of hours and won't let them leave. And, and it, it though it lacks kind of the gore and the viscera that we're going to see in um, a couple of decades from this point, it definitely has the same feel, the same kind of psychological torture of forcing them to play games and forcing them to do stuff. So that's kind of one of the first ones that I point to and go, okay, this is where we're going. And this is one of the ones that I think later influenced people like Rob Zombie and Eli off. I also point to the Poe-Corman cycle that was going on in the 1960s. And this is a weird one to point to for torture because you look at the Poe-Corman cycle and these are all just gothic ghost stories it's all about a person moves in and there's a ghost of vincent price's dead wife or vincent price himself is kind of messed up and somebody's trying to marry his sister it was always about vincent price being messed up but that said in these movies in the corman post cycle you never had to stab vincent price with a knife or go at him with an axe or anything like that because he would eventually torture himself to death and become deathly crippled by the end of the movie under his own brain. And so these films, to me, still function very much like torture films. Vincent Price is being tortured to death by his own senses, by its own psychological torture. And even though there is no one poking him with a pointy stick throughout the whole film, they still feel like torture films where it is all about Vincent Price's and his kind of decrepit nature as he slowly dissolves mentally and physically throughout the course of the movie under his own hand. Like he is literally torturing himself through these films, whether it be by smell or by, you know, sound or, or mental, um, you know, his kind of mental downfalls as these characters. So even though that these films feel really, really squeaky clean Um, and, you know, very little gore in them. They feel just very kind of classic uh, gothic ghost stories. We really are seeing this idea of psychological torture included them. By 1967 the Hayes Codes, these were the codes that were kind of governing Hollywood not to do anything crazy. The idea of, you know, and there there was a whole list of them that you couldn't put in nudity or any sexual content or, you know, Satanism or anything like that. The Hayes Codes um, were there to kind of govern Hollywood into, you know, not showing any depravity on screen. And we adhered to them for decades. But by the 60s, people were really starting to care less and less about them. And by 1967, the Hayes Codes had almost entirely been abandoned. Even Hollywood legends like Otto Preminger were really trying to push the boundaries. But indies just across the board kind of said to hell with it and just quit trying to get Hayes Codes approval. Or they even began faking it where they were just kind of slapped the approval on there from another film without even thinking twice about it. And so... This thing that we had been adhering to for decades as law, you can't release a film without the Hays Codes, suddenly it became kind of the Wild West where people were like, well, why not? Just do it. And then we enter Herschel Gordon Lewis, who was known as the godfather of gore. And Herschel Gordon Lewis had previously been making kind of nudie cutie little um, uh, TNA films, decided to enter the horror world because he thought that that was doing well at drive-ins. And he was right. And so he made Blood Feast. And then right after that, he came out with a whole slew of films. um, Gruesome Twosome, Color Me Blood Red, 2000 Maniacs, Wizard of Gore. And all of these have kind of poorly written scripts. I love you Herschel Gordon Lewis, but the scripts the scripts are a little poor. Um, that acting is so-so. They, they definitely had this element of camp. It was what John Waters would call the ludicrously tragic, where it was kind of so bad it was funny. Um, but what these films did have were excessive amounts of torture and gore. And Lewis knew that that is why people were watching these movies. They were not watching for brilliant cinema or amazing Cinematography or composition, they were watching to see these gory moments, and so you really quickly see him start structuring the plots around it. Blood Feast is definitely trying for a plot, but by the time we get to things like Two Thousand Maniacs and Wizard of Gore, Two Thousand Maniacs, I mean, it's got a loose plot. It's kind of like a horror version of Brigadoon, where this town springs to life every couple hundred years, but it springs to life with the sheer notion. Of torturing people and so then we see these kind of non southerners come into the town and then one by one we torture them wizard of gore is totally focused around torture literally the plot in this one is like a skeletal framework that we're gonna hang these awesome gory set pieces on these awesome torture set pieces where we see this magician Um, in a very much kind of Grand Gignol theatrical style where he is going to present these incredibly gory acts on stage where he is going to, you know, beat somebody with a drill press and like push it through their abdomen or he is going to rip out your tongue with a knife and all of this horrible, horrible stuff. But then magically at the end of the show, your body will be rebuilt and it will all be an act until you go home and then everything falls apart and you realize that it was real. But the whole plot Is built around displaying these gruesome acts and so that is what makes up 90% of the film the gruesome twosome has a little bit more of a plot where it's about a mother and son who are in business making wigs for the local college but to make the wigs they kill people and it's not even just about kind of scalping them to get the hair I mean like the son goes crazy with these bodies and that's what most of the movie is made up of is these gruesome things that he is doing to these bodies Um, and so with With this, knowing that people were going to these movies to see the gore and torture, Herschel Gordon Lewis created his own marketing style for these movies, which I can best compare to a carnival barker where it would start with this warning of like, this is not for the faint of heart. This is not for those with a heart condition or anything like that. And then he would go on to list the amazing atrocities you were about to see. Literally on the 2000 Maniacs poster, it says, see like, like a carnival style See a person get crushed to death with stones. See somebody get their eyeballs gouged out, and all of this stuff. So it literally does feel like P.T. Barnum is trying to sell you a torture film, and it's phenomenal and so fun. So all of his plots centered around these atrocities, and the plots were just mechanisms to kind of push you into the violence and torture. But as Isabel Pinheiro notes in her book *Recreational Terror*. Lewis is a mix of reality and trickery. He is constantly playing with us in that regard. Even his scripts, his plots feel very much like a combination of reality and trickery. He's using real blood for artwork in Color Me Blood Red. The town in 2000 Maniacs is fake um, but the stuff that they are doing is real. The strippers, the idea of performers and Gore Gore Girls, how they're putting on this performance for everyone but then the killers become real. And then Montag, of course, in Wizard of Gore, we've got this, you know, are the acts real or not? Oh, it's just an illusion but it's not and so he's constantly playing with us the biggest thing that i note about Herschel gordon lewis is that the gore in these films does not feel real in any capacity the colors are this crazy hyper color it literally looks like poster paint where it's like either bright bright red or bright bright orange everything feels plasticky everything feels styrofoam heads bounce and everything It feels fake, but somehow it still has this incredible visceral quality. And I watch Herschel Gordon Lewis films, understanding its camp and understanding that, of course, this does not look real in any capacity. But there is still a suspended disbelief where as he is gouging out people's tongues, I still feel compelled to look away. And so let's listen to a little bit from the trailer of The Wizard of Gore just to get a little bit and of uh, Kershaw gordon amazing marketing style. The announcement
1: that I am about to make has been made only twice before in motion picture history. Each time it has preceded the showing of scenes from motion pictures which have become regarded as the most unusual of their type ever filmed. Now we make this announcement for the third time. The same production team that made the classic movie, Blood Feast, and later a film called The Gruesome Twosome, which some regard as the wildest movie ever filmed, have a new movie geared to the 1970s. We're about to show you a few scenes of this movie which is called The Wizard of Gore. For those of you who appreciate this type of cinematic art, you will see the most startling scenes of their type ever filmed. But for those of you with heart conditions or who are with young and impressionable children, we ask that you turn around in your seats or leave this auditorium for the next two minutes. Thank you.
2: I am Montag. Master of illusion. Your eyes may see, but your mind may refuse to believe. Permit me to show you a few of the tricks I perform in the Wizard of Gore. I excuse myself from those activities you've just seen. No. You see, I'm not afraid to stick my neck out. Take a look. Certainly the most startling motion picture of all time. This film will take its place in motion picture history as a milestone of extraordinary achievement. Never before have the weird, the eerie, the astonishing, the bewildering been shown in so stunning a film. Behind the facade of a normal world lies another world whose grisly mystery brings panic to some, satisfaction to others. Astounding achievement in bizarre, amazing theater. In
0: 1968, we feel a shift from kind of campy torture to more intense torture. And I point to Witchfinder General as one of the films that really indicated this shift, directed by Michael Reeves. And this was produced by Taigon British and AIP. And this was a British production, but to link it to the Coram Poe cycle that had been going on in the States, when it was released in the U.S., they titled it The Conqueror Worm. And so a lot of people lumped it into the Coram and Poe films. But Witchfinder General feels completely different. It's not a gothic horror film in any way. This film is about witch hunting and torture, and it has tons of torture. In this movie, Vincent Price plays a witch finder. His job is to torture women into admitting that they are witches. And he even rape somebody in this movie it's it feels weird it feels intense it feels visceral and horrible and cruel and it's nothing that we'd ever seen from vincent price before which is why i personally cannot link them into the corman post cycle this movie just feels incredibly different it was not censored when it was released in the u.s but it was censored all over the place elsewhere just because it is so intense Vincent Price gives such an amazing performance in this movie, and I absolutely love the score in the film. Across the board is really great, but it feels mean, hateful, and cold, which is quite different from a lot of the other films that we'd seen earlier in the decade. And it truly did show a turning of tide in viewers and kind of that people were more pushing towards heavy violence and kind of more serious cold cinema and this was followed up by mark of the devil in 1970 as well as a couple other copycat films but by the time the 1970s rolled around violence became common in cinema even to the extent of being exacerbated. And this is when we really start to get into the exploitation films, where the exploitation films would find something that society is touchy about, something that society holds near and dear, something that most people would not want to be exploited. And then they exploit the shit out of it. Um, We see gore shift from kind of the Herschel Gordon Lewis fake-looking gore to real. Everything was trying to look real in the 1970s. And we see the aesthetic shift from what I'll call kind of a traditional studio picture, you can picture like what early Corman films looked like. Even if we look back at the and poe cycle, these were being made on a shoestring budget, but they still look clean. They still look like highly produced films. They still look very studio quality. But we see a shift here where filmmakers themselves started really taking that into their own hands and said, fuck it, we're not going to make it look clean. We don't want it to look like a nice studio picture. And so we start seeing this grittier aesthetic come out. We see Easy Rider. We see Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And so it really does shift from the idea of, being a nice clean studio picture even if it wasn't a studio picture kind of the nice clean produced film to something that's a lot grittier and a lot more kind of run and gun And we also have this kind of post-war shift. And many of these filmmakers have gone on records stating that it was this kind of war and post-war environment that really did push them to get into horror. We've heard this from Tom Savini, who said that this was what pushed him into special effects. Wes Craven has said many times that this is kind of where Last House on the Left came from, that it was all of the newsreel footage that he was seeing that kind of pushed this film and made him really want to push the violence in it. And this is also the time when we get the first generation of film school brats, or this is our first group of people who had gone to college for film, graduating and going out into the world to make stuff. This is what Peter Bizkin termed the Raging Bulls and Easy Writers in his book, Raging Bulls and Easy Writers. And this is what he had to say about this time period and this first group of film school graduates. It was the last time Hollywood produced a body of risky, high-quality work that was character rather than plot-driven, that defied traditional narrative That challenged the tyranny of technical correctness, that broke taboos of language and behavior, that dared to end unhappily. These were often films without heroes, without romance, within the lexicon of sports which colonized Hollywood, anyone to root for. And it's the idea of not having a hero and not having a happy ending that, for me, really kind of classifies where many of these films are. And we do look at films like Easy Rider, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and Last House on the Left, we are left going, well, no one's alive. Or if they are, what will become of them when we look at Texas Chainsaw Massacre? I mean, Sally gets away, but is it a happy ending? If we look at Last House on the Left, I mean, the parents have, have taken care of the problem, but have they? We get all of these questions about morality in these films. And so everything becomes really mucky, by the 1970s we're really kind of bucking against all of the trends that we saw in the prior decade in 1972 the Hayes Codes are struggling for control but honestly at this point no one cares um, they, they are still fighting to say nope nope everything you people are doing is wrong you're all depraved horrible people and no one cares they are just doing their own thing and it is in 1972 that Craven makes Last House on the Left and he had previously directed a couple of uh, porn titles under a different name But this was kind of his first horror film. Um, Based on Virgin Spring, it was originally called Sex Crimes of the Century and then briefly retitled Krug and Company before they went to Last House on the left. And even though that it was based on Virgin Spring, it does not feel much like it aside from a little bit plot-wise. Virgin Spring is about redemption and purification, but Last House really turned that on its head and kind of gave us the inverse of it. Um, Last House, knowing that it was inspired by all of this graphic newsreel footage from the war, It's about the collapse of power systems. It's about the fluctuating and fuzzy definitions of morality. We see cops in the movie, but they hold no control whatsoever. It is the criminals, the absolute psychopaths that have the control in the movie. And then at the end, we see the parents... They then take the control, but in that, they themselves become the psychopaths. So we see this whole shifting morality, and we also see the breaking down of the American dream within there, of the family kind of falling apart and and that nothing is okay, and at the end— is it okay? No, nothing is okay. It's this kind of postmodern idea that the horror keeps going long after the credits have rolled and that you are going to be haunted by this final ending note forever. Like there's no ending to the horror. And this gives us the infamous line. It's only a movie. It's only a movie. And this was from the last house marketing campaign of, uh, you know, if it starts to bother you or whatever it is, just keep repeating. It's only a movie. It's only a movie. It's questionable which film did this first. This has been long debated. Like some people claim it was from a Herschel Gordon Lewis movie, which would make sense. It does sound like a Herschel Gordon Lewis marketing tactic. But that said it's Last House that made it famous. And then this line was stolen again and again. And because of the success of Last House on the Left, we saw not only a whole bunch of copycat films like House at the Edge of the Park and House on the, uh, Last House on Dead End Street come out, but we also see violence just go nuts in cinema. And the idea of um, these torture films, it, it definitely became a trend within the grindhouse markets. Um, so let's listen to a little bit of the Last House on the Left trailer.
3: It rests on 13 acres of earth over the very center of hell. Here is the first motion picture to offer to the daring a look into the final maddening space between life and death last house on the left. To avoid fainting, keep repeating. It's only a movie. Only a movie. Only a movie. Sights and sounds far beyond anything you've tested. The last house on the left. To avoid fainting, keep repeating. It's only a movie. Only a movie. Only movie. take as Only much movie. as you can. Only movie.
0: Last House on the Left helped to shape American torture films by really driving that torture and violence can be a means. For meaning, that there's messaging behind it, that yes, we are watching these heinous acts, but there is something there. And it was also one of the first films that I think kind of raised the question of is this in any way cathartic? We're watching all of these heinous acts on screen, understanding that they're fictionalized, but they're still resonating within us. What is the mental repercussions of watching this? Is it making us more violent? Is it making us think about violence? Is it in our faces so we have to confront it now? We are really being forced to look at it. And just as America shifted from the uneasy but clean hands of the 1950s Cold War to the gritty-in-your-face violence of Vietnam, the torture cycle of the 1970s equally followed suit, shifting from internal clean deaths that we saw in the 1960s to literally exposing innards and displaying gritty graphic reality on screen. And this wasn't even just in the films that I would port to point to and go, "Oh, well that was a torture film." We see this across the board in grindhouse films from this time period, exploitation cinema. I would also point to Nazi exploitation and nunsploitation both just completely full of kind of the torture tropes in 1974 we had both ilsa she-wolf of the ss and flavia the heretic um nazi exploitation and nunsploitation staples but both have the same torture-ish plots, still structured around these torture set pieces But across the board, what we are seeing in these films from the 1970s is the death of the American dream. This total feeling of bleakness of everything that we had been told in the 50s and early 60s about buying a house in the suburbs and having 2.5 kids and eating, you know, microwave TV dinners uh, every night. It's gone and there's nothing left. And we see this in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. We see this in Last House on the Left. We see this in The Hills Have Eyes, how we have this absolutely twisted, messed up family of cannibals living in the hills of the desert that somehow seem more organized and together than our good American family in the camper that's come in and so it really does bring in questions of what's good or bad we really start to have questions of morality in these films in the hills have eyes this is the original we'll talk about the remake in a bit um, in the original we see that they are eating people they are feeding their family but at the same time they're eating people and so it really does get into questions of good and bad In Texas Chainsaw Massacre we have the same thing where we see um, this group of kids who are on the way to visit you know a childhood memory this place that they used to play when when they were kids and they're going to go to the swimming hole and they encounter this family. They encounter Leatherface and and, um, the hitchhiker in this family. But at times that family, including grandpa, is more unified and has more of a structure than they do. And so it's this whole idea of is the American dream real? And I would definitely say that this kind of concept of questioning the American dream in cinema continued up through a racer head like a racer head was definitely one that just blew up the concept threw it in your face. And it was also it kind of dissolved then. And we didn't see it as much in the 80s in lieu of giant slashers and huge effects. Um, but this. The death of the American dream and questioning of reality and even the postmodern ending of not really having an ending and letting the horror continue after the credits roll is really what defines torture films from the 1970s for me. By the mid-1970s, torture films were common and trendy. And this was definitely the case until the rise of the slashers and the crazy effects films took the market in the 1980s. And then we see torture films fall asleep for a couple of decades. And that's not to say there weren't any. There were definitely a couple that I would classify as torture films in the 1980s and 90s, but we did not see them in a grouping. We did not see them being released in excess, again, until the 2000s. In 2004, we see Saw released. And then I would say that we see this kind of surge of torture films happen from 2004 to 2007, and that's when Captivity came out. And then after that, uh, Captivity for me was kind of like the, the, the landmark ending, and then after that, they kind of start petering off, leading up to Human Centipede in 2009, and we're still seeing a few now but these definitely um have a different aesthetic than we were seeing in the early 2000s um the idea that we we did see this really specific aesthetic within this grouping of films um that it was red it was gritty it was black they were very kind of monochrome they weren't very colorful at all they were kind of washed out and if we were seeing colors that it was very much red and um maybe some greens that it all felt kind of sickly and so we were really seeing this very specific kind of warehouse concrete floor aesthetic going along with these torture films of the 2000s. So whereas in the 1970s I noted that I felt like the torture films were all kind of linked by the idea of the bleakness, the the loss of the American dream, and the idea that the horror continues after the the credits roll. the idea of the postmodern horror film. With these, I felt like they were all kind of linked together by the idea of loss of control. Or specifically that the idea that someone is watching you, that someone is controlling you, and that you are just a puppet in this. Um, And we see that in Saw. We see that and that's with Jigsaw, who is literally kind of the master of the puppets here as he's walking everybody through these games. And um, we see this in Hostel, that everyone is, you know, kind of being bought and sold long before they ever even get to this place where they are being tortured. They are being kind of purchased. And And it's the idea that we are all being watched at some point, that everything is out of our control. We are all being watched. And we acknowledge this. It's the idea that society loves watching each other, but we are all also being watched. And then ultimately, we as viewers are watching them be tortured as well. So there's a whole commentary going on about viewership and that we are all watching each other, but we're all also being watched and perceived. So by this time, when these films are really starting to take off, like right after the first Saw came out, I had entered grad school. And I had a professor that right around the time that the Hills Have Eyes remake came out, I remember him saying in class that this film is a direct response to um, the war that's going on in the Middle East and Guantanamo Bay and everything, and that this entire thing was a filmmaker see, filmmaker do aesthetic. That we had seen all of this happening in the media and that Hostel and um, The Hills Have Eyes and all of these films were being made in direct relation to that. And I'm not so sure about that. I still disagree with him. I do not think that Saw or any of the Saw sequels were made because of national atrocities. I do not think that any of these filmmakers saw stuff that was going on or were traumatized by 9-11 and therefore made these movies. Um, I don't think the same thing of Saw. I will say that Hills Have Eyes seems to point a little bit more at the war in the Middle East, which we'll talk about in a sec. But across the board, I don't necessarily think that this is the same thing that was going on in the 1970s. Whereas Wes Craven saw these atrocities happening um, in the Vietnam War and on newsreel footage, and we see this with folks like Tom Savini, and then they directly made something in response to it. I think that this is much more about audience response that saw devil's rejects hostile films like this came out and that they hit well with audiences because of what we were seeing this time that it wasn't so much about the filmmakers making films as a direct response to it but it resonated with us and these films became successful because of what we had been going through so it's a little bit different for me for the 2000s it was all about audience response not so much the initial messaging with the exception of maybe the hills have eyes but what was it about the excessive violence in Texas Chainsaw Massacre that really really resonated with us and we're going to look in a sec but these films really did come out of nowhere we were seeing these very kind of quiet art dread horrors like the others in the sixth sense and then out of nowhere we get saw Texas Chainsaw Massacre and House of a Thousand Corpses and those are what hit so I'm much more thinking that for the 2000s it was much more about audience response than it was an artist creative response. And for more information on this, I highly recommend um, that people check out the book, Shocking Representations, Historical Trauma, National Cinema, and the Modern Horror Film. And this is written by Adam Lowenstein. And it looks at this trend of kind of violence in the world and violence in reality causing violent cinema, not just in the U.S., but he looks at it in Britain, Japan, France, and a lot more. And so he really does analyze how it affects each different cultural region and, and just Kind of notes over and over that violence in reality or national trauma in reality Does usually lead to heavy replications in cinema and in this we're looking at how it particularly affected horror fans and Let me say before I get into this idea of the post 9-11 cinema that trauma is never easy to understand especially at a national level but the idea of violence in reality leading to violence in cinema has been seen over and over so now let's break down a little bit of kind of the post-9-11 history of cinema, kind of like where we were when it happened and then where we went afterwards. And it is difficult. I mentioned this before. It's really difficult to determine when a film cycle begins and ends. Certainly, films are not designed to release in a void of order and structure. As discussed earlier, many factors make it difficult to identify origins of a film trend, such as international involvement, taste making, and studio control. Historical trends are often incredibly unclear. However, the 9 11 attack provides us a clear date of transition in our real world history. On September 11, 2001, terrorists crashed planes into the World Trade Center, the Pentagon in Washington, D.C., and a fourth plane crashed in Pennsylvania. At this point, tasteful, suspenseful thrillers of like the M. Night Shyamalan ilk were dominating the horror market. Gory horror films were present but in super small and mounts. but a large focus was on this suspenseful art dread horror stuff. The weekend prior to 9-11 we saw several horror films showing nationwide. Jeepers Creepers was in third place, The Others was in fifth place, and the following Friday the 14th, The Glass House, another art dread suspense film, opened in second place. And the next several months after 9-11 saw more art dread suspense horror things like memento joyride on october 5th don't say a word on september 28th and from hell on october 19th the horror marketing surrounding the post 9-11 attacks was predominantly art dread suspense films with limited gory horror present most of these films were pg-13 so when did the change happen Well, fitting with the effects of media trauma, which I'll discuss shortly, the effects arrive in slow drops, and then someone opens the floodgates. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake was released in 2003 and was considered extremely graphic and shocking when it was first released, but the film was definitely marked as one of the first glances into the new torture cycle. 2003 also saw more extreme films releasing on a much smaller scale with things like House of a Thousand Corpses. So in 2003, we start to see this slow shift towards more extreme cinema. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Love It or Hate It, did extremely well at the box office, as did the equally graphic films Wrong Turn, 28 Days Later, and Freddy vs. Jason. However, art dread thrillers that were released that year, like Gothica, saw lower returns. And remember that this does not mean that the art dread horrors that were releasing that year were bad movies by any stretch. It just means that they were not hitting With audiences then. These films were not specifically worse than earlier art dread horror films. They just came out at the wrong time. In 2003, the U.S. opened the Guantanamo Bay Detention Center to house suspected terrorists. Reports emerged almost immediately about the facility violating NATO human rights agreements and detainees being held indefinitely. And almost immediately, reports of torture began to creep out. Guantanamo Bay sparked concern and media coverage and then a series of torture reports from other areas, including Abu Ghraib, were released. By 2004, the media was bursting with stories of torture at the hands of American troops. In April 2004, 60 Minutes working with The New Yorker broke a story in infamous pictures of tortured inmates. Horror films released in 2003 had proven to be a mix of art dread and graphic films, but by 2004, the transition to the much darker side of horror was well underway. Even art dread horror films released in 2004 are very bleak, whereas the previous year's art dread successes like The Sixth Sense, The Others, and Sonic. all end on positive notes, 2004 art dread horror films are dark, bleak from start to finish, and we're looking at films like Open Water and Secret Window and even the sleeper hit Donnie Darko, all ending on very sour notes of hopelessness. But then we saw the success of the Saw film, and this really did push the floodgates open a little bit more for a number of kind of intense films to come out within the next few years, really dominating the box office. And this list includes Hostel, The Hills Have Eyes, The Devil's Rejects, Terestas, and even I Know who killed me at the same time reports of torture continued to trickle into the media and by 2006 phrases like sleep deprivation and waterboarding had become common topics on the five o'clock news human rights group continued to fight back but could the trauma of going through 9-11 and knowing that the american government was potentially torturing people have affected the tones of american horror films So in that, is there a post-9-11 horror film? And this term got thrown around so much right after the the tragedy. We saw the post-9-11 economy and post-9-11 security and post- 9-11 politics. And of course there is post-9-11 cinema. We've seen in history over and over that as soon as some type of national tragedy happens, that there is a national response in cinema. And so of course horror films had this as well. And so we do see this increase of torture films um, post 9-11 and for this I think that there are five traits that I've identified that kind of set these films apart from torture films that we saw in the 1970s these are five traits that is true for most of them it's not true for all of them but I would say that most of them fit into at least a couple of these categories and the first one is bleak endings the idea of the postmodern ending and this is what we're seeing in Saw Theresta's descent hostile that every single one of these films ends on a you may have survived but it what cost note and this we did see in a lot of the films of the 1970s so this one does carry over between the two cycles we are also seeing in this cycle, in the torture porn cycle, characters in foreign environments. The idea that we are traveling to foreign lands. We see this in Hostel. We see it in touristas that we are out of our element, that we're in a different place, and then it happens. This even happens in the Hills Have Eyes remake and the Hills Have Eyes 2, where we're moving into this desert environment, which even though that they are military, they are very ill-equipped for. And this idea that we are fighting a battle on land that we are not familiar with, and don't know how to proceed Um, there's also this feeling of ambiguity in these films or anything can happen the idea that you think you're going to a party and then you think you're going to a um, prostitution house but then it turns crazy and Terese they think they're just going on vacation and hills have eyes you know it's a military operation we are going into something but we have no idea what is going into and then what is being sold in these films is the idea of the torture and this is where i talked earlier about ross marketing um for the hostile films and how it really just was selling the torture elements The original trailer for Hostel just features scenes of torture intercut with words, intercut with text and music over top. There's very little speaking in it. And it says, you know, that there's this place where you can torture, punish, or kill for a price. And this is all during scenes of torture. There's nothing about plot. There's nothing about character. We are only seeing the torture elements. So that is what is really selling these films. And then ultimately. All of these films bring out something interesting that I did not see in a lot of the 1970s torture films. And that's the idea of torture being a quest for truth. And look at this specifically in the Saw films, how through pain we can somehow find the truth, that the truth will come out, or that we will somehow strip away our facade and we will find spiritual freedom within ourselves, that you can use torture to gain answers and information. And this is true in a lot of these movies that come out around this time period, but it's not something that we saw in the 1970s. And this is a very medieval concept, the idea that pain is somehow related to truth. We see this in Inquisitions and witch trials and countless other brutalities throughout history. And to this day, we still somewhat perceive pain as a direct line to truth. Um, with this in mind, let's listen to a clip from the Saw 2 trailer. He doesn't want us to cut through our chains. No! He wants us to cut through our feet. He helped me. Oh. I want to play a game.
3: Greetings and welcome. Right now, you are breathing in a deadly nerve agent. (coughs) The only way out is to find an antidote. One is inside the safe. You all possess the combination in the back of your mind. Let the game begin.
2: Let's just take our food. This whole house is you shut the hell wait, wait, wait. Shut
3: the i Run. Live no. or die, make your choice.
2: There's something that we're not seeing. You did this. Open the door.
3: There's nowhere to go. Where is he? Oh, yes. There will be blood.
0: And so the final trait that I really see predominant in these torture porn films is the idea of distrust for a governing body that we are all being deceived. And so we see this in Saw, the idea of the hidden force that this secretly path, the secret path, has been laid out in front of us, and it's up to us to choose. But ultimately, you know, whether or not we live or die may not entirely be in our hands. That there is this master of puppets controlling everything. We see this in Hostel, Teristas, High Tension. Um, the hills have eyes is perhaps one of the most specific ones that really does get into the distrust of the governing body. And we see this in a lot of the differences that the Hills Have Eyes made between the original film and this remake. Whereas in the original film, the Hill People, Papa Jupiter's clan, were kind of just a group of people who lived in the mountains. We get that um, Papa Jupiter had been raised by somebody in town. Um, he had been he'd gotten some type of head injury, like the the dad had beat him. Um, he was a little bit deformed, so he ran off to the woods. Somehow found a wife and made a whole bunch of babies. And so they are literally just a family that happened. Happens to live in the hills and eat people. The Hills Have Eyes has a much darker, much more kind of distrust for the government backstory where it's all about these coal miners who um, the government launched all of these nuclear tests out in the Southwest and the coal miners stayed there during the nuclear tests. So it was actually the American government that did this to them. And it opens the whole movie opens with all of this footage of these nuclear tests blowing up homes, blowing up suburban homes, burning up mannequins and things like that. So we really open with this idea that our government is against us. And then the whole concept of the movie becomes mutants versus the normal people. But the idea of normalcy gets really mixed up when we see kind of humanity in some of the mutants. And then we have this father figure named Big Bob and the whole idea that Big Bob's going to fix it. But Big Bob, who is supposed to be our leader, is incredibly inefficient in the movie. And And he comes with this giant American flag on his car, which becomes a symbol in the movie as it literally gets stabbed through one of the mutants' heads. And so The Hills Have Eyes is just ripe with this idea of distrust for the governing body, that we are all being deceived, that everything we know may be false. And so knowing that these are kind of the traits... Of torture porn of the 2000s, let's talk a little bit about trauma and specifically what is the idea of national trauma and how these films could have anyway been helping us through this. And so I looked up so many different sources trying to get a firm definition for what trauma is. And no one really reg- agrees on it across the board, but everyone agrees on one thing, that trauma is based on memory. And this was kind of the only thing that I could find all of the different sources agreeing on is that trauma is based on memory. That after specific events that we find to be unsettling or something like 9-11 where it just shakes us to our core, People hold on to a mental imprint and let it affect their current lives, mentally and emotionally. So whereas normal events in our lives happen and get filed away in the recesses of our brains, trauma stays on the surface, right at the forefront, whether we realize it's there or not. And it can become a dictating factor in our current lives and our decision processes long after the actual event occurs. And this can be mild Things like, hey, the Novocaine wore off one time I was at the dentist office and now I'm scared to go back to the dentist. Or it can be something extreme, um, like Johnny's in a car crash and so therefore Johnny is scared to get back into a car. And so, you know, it's it's something that kind of taints your future. It's something that taints your your brain later, but it's all based on a memory. And trauma gets much harder to define when it's on a national level, when we're trying to think like, how was our nation traumatized by events? And so in the book Tangled Memories, The Vietnam War, The AIDS Epidemic, and the Politics of Remembering, Marita Sturkin poses the question, what does it mean for a culture to remember? And she ultimately determines that memories, both good and traumatic, define the culture and dictate the decisions of the culture. When this is on a national level, these memories are easily hidden and disguised as much more as a single behavior is at the individual level. In other words, as I said, Johnny's in a car accident, and now he's afraid to drive. This is much easier to point out as trauma than horror fans' tastes in movies shifted because of a national traumatic event. Um, The sheer volume of an entire nation can mask identification. But many other potential factors also become involved. And Sterkin recognizes that at a national level, there are many factors that play into actions, which can often mask the root cause. People could claim that the taste in horror cinema in the United States shifted to graphic material because torture films were cheaper to make. And that's what we were providing them with. You could say that it was simply because we had not seen this type of excessive gore in a couple of decades. So we were all ready for it. So there's a lot of different other factors at play that make it really hard to point to to say that this was all a result of national trauma and in his book this is a picture not the world movies in the post 9-11 America Joseph Natalie discusses how popular film quote needs to be where we are in our imaginations but not just there to soothe us, but to haunt us as well. Haunt us with what already haunts us. The public fear that surrounded 9-11 and the torture reports in the Iraq War no doubt affected us at varying levels. Much of our culture was affected. Film and other forms of artistic expressions allow us as a collective group to express the emotional charges of the event and then deal with it head on. Film is a public forum, and it's one that society's pathways for expressions will always go through. So even the surge of violent 9-11 torture films, it would be impossible to tell, but it really does feel like this is some type of coping mechanism. So with that in mind, why on earth would we want to watch this stuff? Why would you say, I feel really messed up about what happened on 9-11, I don't know what's going on with the torture, but it doesn't feel right. Why would we then... For horror fans, at least, find solace in watching absolutely brutal media. Well, this is what Linda Williams calls difficult pleasures. And it's the idea that through watching this incredibly difficult material that we can derive some type of pleasure, that there's an aesthetic to it, that there is something that we find pleasing. And ultimately, I've always felt that horror is cathartic, that there is something important to going in and viewing something extreme and something that really pushes your limits and coming out on the other side. To many, myself included, this is therapeutic. It's almost like an emotional purge and I feel better after watching stuff like this. Um, it's the idea of kind of the shock and awe that we would collectively gather to watch these films to be shocked to be awed, to be tested that there's something transgressive about them that we are testing ourselves and fighting against the world that we know and then we come out on the other side so is horror cathartic could people have been getting some type of good effect from watching all of these extreme torture porns at this time yes horror is completely cathartic if you ask any horror fan they will tell you that horror makes them feel better for many of us it's safe it's like a roller coaster ride where you are pushing yourselves to your limits why do people skydive why do people do anything intense like that it is the idea of pushing yourselves to the limits but doing so in a safe controlled environment even if we look at a film that like the perfection that just came out that movie is fucking off the rails it is crazy it has everything from bug vomit to amputations to potential rape There is so much going on in that movie, but at the end of it, though I felt unhinged and bonkers during it and had no idea what was going to happen next, at the end, I stood up, walked away, and felt a little emotionally cleansed. Concepts like fear, anxiety, paranoia, and worry, these plague our lives, even more so during national tragedies. But we as horror fans are able to work these out on screen, and then ultimately, hopefully, find ourselves better equipped to deal with these emotions in real life, and so that it makes sense that during more extremely traumatic times, like post-9-11 or when we're in the middle of a war, that we would need to seek out more extremely traumatic cinema. Ultimately, horror Horror films all do one thing and I'm about to quote 1990s film Ski Patrol but this really has become kind of my mantra for why I love horror films horror films let us taste death and live life we are all staring at the fact that we are someday going to die and this existential dread looms over top of all of us in times of national tragedy or war or news reports of horrible things that are being done we are even more confronted with the fact that we are all going to die our own mortality becomes even more real so it makes sense during this time that we as horror fans find more solace in tasting death and living life that through this we are able to feel more alive about ourselves and we are able to feel more mentally aware and ready to deal with whatever is in front of us we all see how quickly and horribly things can go wrong but we walk out of these intense movies feeling more alive than ever so i'm gonna end this by saying horror fans there's absolutely nothing wrong with you Torture porn fans, there is absolutely nothing wrong with you. And for those of us who absolutely hate torture films, there is nothing wrong with us either. Trauma is different for everyone and how we deal with it is different for everyone. And there are definitely times when I want to be pushed to my edge cinematically. There are times where I want to watch a film like Hostel, where I need to watch a film like Hostel, whether I realize it in my conscious or not. And then there are other times that I don't need it. And if I watch a film like that, I may buck at it and go, I didn't really like that because it's not what I need it right now. But somehow these heinous acts being performed on a screen are a way that resonates differently within each of us and for those of us who are able to look at a little bloodshed on screen and find some type of redemption and solace in it then god bless saw and god bless Hostel. taste death live life
2: well, you, you know how to wake the dead. You think, you've heard the call. You think Show you Nightmare University is a Fangoria Podcast Network original produced and hosted by Rebecca McKendry, producer Natasha Pesetta, executive producers Dallas Sanier and Phil Nobile Jr., associate producer Jessica Safavimer, art and design by Ashley Detmering, sound recording design and mixing by David McKendry, music by The Serpentines, for Fangoria, Brandon Winerdi, Jason Koslerich, and Rachel Wilson.